Welcome to the Round 6 Podcast, a weekly roundtable discussion featuring a variety of automotive subjects, interviews, special guests, and stories, hosted by the Round 6 Gearheads, Brian Stubsky, Alex Welsh, and Brad King. It's a new year and a whole new season of the Round 6 Podcast, and we're kicking off 2019 with special guest... Josh Mishler from Advanced Plating. Happy New Year and welcome to the Round 6 Podcast. I'm Brian. I'm Brad. I'm Alex. And with us tonight is a uh, longtime friend of ours and a, well, hell, a longtime listener, first-time guest, Mr. Josh Mishler. How are you tonight, sir? Good. How are you guys doing? Doing, doing great. All good, man. Hey, what's new with you, sir? How are things in uh, scenic? And is it is it sunny Tennessee these days? Yeah, it has been the last few days. I will say that. Very cool. You guys, you guys are obviously keeping very busy over at uh, Advanced Plating with the whole show season kicking off into full swing. Yeah, you know, it's been kind of a, uh, a weird shift, so to speak, because I'm very used to uh, this time of year, everything that comes in at work uh, being, you know, either trying to make Grand National Roadster Show or trying to get ready for the Detroit, Detroit Autorama. And, you know, unfortunately, because of the catastrophic fire we had at the end of August, uh, I'm just not fielding a lot of that work right now. <laughs> right now for obvious reasons but uh luckily that's the one good thing about uh i would say about the chrome business per se is it's not like you go out and make a bunch of enemies with the other people that uh, do chrome plating and uh luckily there's been a few other shops that have uh stepped up to help out not only us but some of our customers uh you know john wright has been a has been a good friend of mine for years and he was willing to jump in and help a couple of my Riddler customers and uh, uh, Dan's plating in uh, Adamsville, Tennessee. He's been a big help to advance plating and uh, it's just, it's been, uh, it's been really, everybody always talks about how well the hot rod industry rallies around one another and uh, it's definitely been proven over the last couple of months for sure. That's awesome, man. And I, I, I tell you, that was that was devastating to watch that whole situation unfold. I mean, from the outside, I can only imagine, you know, on the inside, what you guys were thinking. Now, and here's it, here's an interesting story to that. So, I had been trying to photograph a car for almost a year, and I had finally got it scheduled for that Saturday, and that the fire happened, and I was halfway there. And my phone rings and it's the alarm company for advanced plating. And they're telling me that, you know, a fire sensor is going off. And I, and a lot of times when I get a phone call from the alarm company, it's usually something that kind of a fluke deal, you know, you reset it. So my first reaction is, can you just reset it? And the woman's like, uh, no, this isn't resetting. It's like multiple, multiple fire alarms. Like I would take it serious if I were you. And I was like, and she said, I said, well, then obviously we need to do something about it. And she goes, well, it turns out the fire department's already been notified. So 
I get off the phone and I call Sherry Tracy, uh, one of the owners of Advanced Plating, and I asked her, because we all had, some of us had camera access, and I asked her if she could look at the cameras or whatever, and she said, oh, I'm already on the way down there. She goes, the building is on fire. And I was like, oh, man. And I had no, I had no idea how bad it was, but I also knew that there was a few minutes there where I was like, do I need to turn around and go back, or do I just need to go get this done? And ultimately, I decided that if I went back, all I was going to do is stand around with the rest of them and watch the place burn because there was nothing we could do. So I went ahead to the shoot and then just, you know, fretted for, uh, you know, the rest of the evening, mostly because there's so many things that you think about. You know, the first thing I'm thinking about is is one-off parts that are in there, my customer's parts, what's going to happen, you know, what's the next couple of weeks going to be like when all these customers are freaking out. And uh, so my wife calls me and she and I are visiting about it. And then she goes, what about your car? And I was like, oh, I just remembered. It was like, I had completely forgotten about the fact that I had a car parked right next to the front of that building. And that that was the first time she reminded me of it. And uh, instantly that was like, I was in panic mode. And uh, I got a friend to go look, and uh, he's, he's like, you know, the, th the smoke is so thick I can't even see it. I was like, oh, that's great. And uh, so, you know, I, I kind of did all those, like, exercises in my head where I was like, yeah, it's going to be all right. No, it's, it's, it's no big deal. It's going to be fine, you know, and, and I, I have no control over it whatsoever and whatnot. But as soon as I got back into town, the first thing I did was, was drive down there. And of course, I talked to to uh, Steve, and and uh, surprisingly, one of the first things Steve told me was, "Oh, don't worry, your car's fine." <laughs> so, I can only imagine everybody had to be in some kind of you know that that state of shock because, man, you know that's not the thing you want to see. It's like, hey, there's our business on the news, and not for oh, and that kind of you know and that was the thing as as soon as it got shared on the internet by somebody from the news coverage. I mean, my phone just went ballistic from like 2 p.m. to midnight. And, it, and I could not respond fast enough to everybody. And I know when I finally went to bed that night, I just turned the phone off. I was like, well, I'm not going to listen to it ding all night. So right there's just, just so many things, you know, and I can only imagine what Steve and Sherry went through with all that because, you know, what I do is just a very small part of advanced plating. And I know how much I was freaking out over everything customer related that was going on in there. But uh, they are incredibly resilient people and uh, know how to bounce back from, you know, incredible tragedies or disasters so to speak because uh as steve put it he's uh crisis tested because this is not the first time he's had <laughs> some sort of catastrophe trying you know take away the business so to speak oh yeah because i mean heck you had you had what just just started there when uh the uh the place was basically turned into a submarine <laughs> yeah i had uh march of uh 2010 
I met with Steve at the Detroit Autorama and he pitched me the job and asked me if I'd want to come spend a week and kind of get acquainted with everything and see if I was even interested in it. So I want to say it was mid-April. I went down there for for a few days and he, you know, one day he had me in the sales department and one day he had me in the stripping room and one day he had me in the buffing room and plating line, racking and shipping. And, you know, what do you think? And I'm like, oh, this, this is cool. This is, this is awesome. So, uh, then my wife and I traveled down there and this would have been, I guess this was in, in mid April as well. And, uh, you know, we got back home. My wife was pregnant at the time. And uh, the plan was that we were going to move after the baby was born. And uh, we got back home. It was only a week. It seemed like it was only a week or two later. I, I was, they were talking about how the Nashville was flooding. And I thought, oh, I wonder if that's really affecting us that much. And of course, as I'm trying to get a hold of Steve and I'm not getting any response, then I'm like, okay, this isn't, this isn't very good. And, and, uh, and that unfortunately, advanced plating was, uh, was victim to that hundred year flood to the city of Nashville and uh, the water, unless you've ever been to our facility, you wouldn't really realize it, but the, there's, it's actually two buildings connected by basically a dock and a breezeway. And the building that the plating was done in was there first. And it was actually almost, I want to say a foot lower than like the showroom. Well, the water rose so high that it was only a matter of inches from getting into the plating tanks. And luckily it stopped before it breached the tanks. And, uh, which was a, Wow. Very, very, very fortunate thing to happen because, you know, Steve, I know I've heard Steve before say that, uh, you know, if it had went in there, it would have been just kind of game over because that would have been just a, a an EPA nightmare. Yeah, yeah, try to imagine that. It's like, hey, this this place that makes things shiny completely ruined the local environment, the, the yeah. water supply. Yeah, the Cumberland River is totally trash now. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, that was another instance where uh, once the water receded, the EPA came in, they cleared everything, said we were, you know, they were good to get back in there. And uh, they just went to town. And uh, one of the things that Steve and Sherry did, and they did recently with the fire, was, you know, there's all these ambulance chaser type companies that'll come in and clean up for you. And, uh, they don't, they don't do that. They use their own employees to do, to do the cleanup and, uh, to try and keep everybody working best they can. And, uh, so if they were down for, I want to say 60 to 90 days when they had the flood and they were back up operating and, uh, the place was really, really nice. And it was a shame that, that the fire happened. But, you know, even though it happened, in hindsight, we're going to end up in a bigger, better facility than we were in to start with. So, you know, you, you try and find the silver lining, even though, you know, it seems kind of weird to, 
be like, oh yeah, but it was a good thing, which I mean, nothing like that's ever good, but I heard an expression one time that sometimes the, uh, the longest roads lead to the best destinations. And maybe that's, maybe that's what's going on here. So, yeah, I hope so for you guys. I mean, if it give you a ton of credit, I mean, you guys just keep on, you bounce back every time. And it's not like you come back and you fall somehow in the industry. You guys come back and you're right there constantly pushing the envelope. And that's, damn, that's awesome. And if, if you guys aren't like the poster children for what hot rodding is about, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll eat Brad's hat. <laughs> ooh. Yeah, ooh, yeah. Ew, ew. <laughs> that's how much faith I have in that. <laughs> Man. So, okay, I want to get back to Chrome and stuff, but this is, again, this is the, the Josh Mishler episode. So, going back, let's see, I met you, you were just a, man, you were a young, not, I don't want to say a young tyke, you were a youngster, we were all young at one point, now I'm sad, but um, when I met you, you were, you were out shooting cars, and you were, uh, you had made your way up at, uh, of all things, Buckaroo Communications who was sadly no longer with us, really. Yeah. Sign of the times. Absolutely. It was, uh, that was another one of them deals that it was fun while it lasted, but, uh, you know, and that's something that you can point to, uh, you know, somebody like Street Rotter, or I guess the whole, what are they now, Motor Trend Group, is that they're definitely looking towards the future because they're doing so much with online content. But, uh, you know, I, I could sit here and blame the, uh, you know, the lack of interest in print, but I don't really think that's the case. It was just, you know, there was a, probably a lot of uh, misguided financial decisions that led to the end of Buckaroo. But uh, like I said, it, it was fun while it lasted, and, and uh, I definitely enjoyed uh, being their head photographer for a number of years. And uh, I, I, I can't thank them enough because they really helped me get out there. And of course, you know, and that's the way that my whole career in that uh, hot rod industry has been is I can thank so many people for everything they did for me to get me, get me there. I mean, it, my time goes back and starts with good guys because I started with good guys when I was 17 years old. Uh, I started writing a column for them and because uh, I had that, that was always a, an easy segue into talking to these other people that were with magazines and, and people in the industry was just being able to say, yeah, I write a column for, you know, for the good guys Gazette. And then, you know, people would take you serious instead of a 17 year old kid, but it's definitely uh, been a lot of fun. That's still incredible. I mean, you, you had a column in there at 17. Those were kind of, I, I don't want to say those are the golden ages, but I remember picking up my first copies of uh, Good Guys Gazette back then. And man, there was, there were so many great columns in there. That was, it was really, it was, I think that was far bigger than the sum of its parts. <laughs> you know, it, the, the way I got tied in with that was, you know, you, you all the time hear the old adage about, you know, you, you got to find something you enjoy and figure out a way to make a living at it. And I really wanted to photograph cars. And 
did not know anything about the means of how to go about getting your stuff in print. And when we were at the Good Guys event in Des Moines, Iowa, the Heartland Nationals, at that time, that many years ago, Steve Anderson was the editor of the Good Guys Gazette. And he was out walking around shooting and uh, I just went up to him and I was like, hey, how do you get a job like this? And uh, he goes, well, you know somebody. <laughs> and I remember thinking, well, so you got to know somebody. That's the way this works, just like they always say. And uh, but he said, no, 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 seriously. And uh, so he he talked to me for a little while and he let me shadow him for a day or so at the event, which he didn't have to do that. But he did. And I'll be forever thankful for it or forever mad about it. I'm not sure which one, but, but uh, uh, he was just like a, an open door of communication because, you know, I, I spent the weekend with him and kind of thought that was that. And then, uh, you know, later, so see, that was in the summer. So then that fall in high school, we had a uh, project where we had to write a, a explanation about a career that we wanted to be involved with. And you had to interview somebody who had the career. So I called him and asked him if I could ask him a few questions for this project. And he said that was fine. And, and uh, after, you know, chatting for a half hour, he was like, well, you're really serious about this, aren't you? And I said, well, yeah, I mean, it's where my interest is at. I mean, it's the one thing I like doing. And, and, he said, well, I got an idea. He says, how would you like to write a youth's perspective of the hot rodding industry? I'm like, well, that's not really taking pictures, but I mean, you know, if there's a, if there's a doorway, I mean, I'm going to take it. So he said, I'll tell you what, he says, send me a sample of something you would write. And then maybe we can make it like a, a like a quarterly column or something like that. And I was like, okay. I sit down, you know, write him a sample, send it to him, and and uh, he writes back, or he calls me, and he says, this, this is great. He says, we're going to use it, and uh, Gary Metters likes the idea, so uh, we're going to do it monthly instead of quarterly. And I was like, oh, great. What am I going to talk about, you know, every month? And, you know, surprisingly, I was able to always find something to talk about, and uh I did that for, I'm trying to think, the first one would have been like March of 99, and I think the last one I did was probably somewhere, oh, I want to say around 2004, 2005, somewhere in there, and in that time frame, it was, I had, let's see, Steve Anderson as an editor, John Gobetti as an editor, Jim Ost is an editor, and Kirk Jones is an editor. So it was interesting to get to meet more people that were in that line of profession through that work. But eventually, I just kind of got to where I hit a wall, and I was like, I don't know how somebody like Brent Vandervoort of Fat Man, he's written a column in there for as long as I can remember. And somehow or another, he comes up with something to talk about tech-wise every month. And... I just, I guess I just don't have that, uh, that knack for that, but, uh, getting back to the, the photography thing was, you know, I knew Steve 
had shot features before and he was shooting features for the Gazette. So I, you know, started picking his brain on that. And uh, also at the same time, my grandfather had had a car that was photographed by a guy for a couple of Mopar magazines and uh, he still talked to him. So I was also bugging him. He was a freelancer and getting some of his input too. And, you know, together I kind of used their two notes and, and started shooting stuff. And, uh, you know, it was at that time you shot everything on slide film and sent in the slides. And the only way any editor would look at it was if you wrote the article. So I had to write the article and I've never been a fan of, of, of writing, but, uh, did it anyway. And of course it was a lot of, uh, rejection, I guess, so to speak, but eventually it finally stuck. So. Well, that's, did I see you, you took everything I was going to ask for anyone who's in, if you want to find your way into a career, cause that, that's been a recurring theme on the podcast is trying to figure out, you know, how people get their foot in the door. And thanks for sharing all that. Cause that's, that's yeah. a hell of a cool story though. I mean, you worked, you were, you were with the Gazette through a lot of changes and it's kind of funny. Every one of those editors kind of put their own stamp on the magazine. You know, it seems like it was like, and it's weird to go like, okay, Kirk was the guy who kind of like really shuffled it into kind of the modern age, you know, with little, with more artsy kind of photos, especially on the covers and things like that. Guy had a definite eye for it, you know? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that was, and that was, I think the thing about photography that, uh, when, when I have always photographed a car, I always love the the details more than I love the the whole car. I mean, don't get me wrong, I like the whole car, but the it's finding the details that you know, finding the art within the car that just I just love every bit of that. And one, so Steve, when he left the Gazette, he went to work for Buckaroo. So this is my segue into Buckaroo, basically. He, Nicely done. That was smooth, man. Yeah. So he tells me he's going to Buckaroo. And he and at first he's not telling me what it is or anything because they were kind of keeping it under wraps. And uh, once it got off the ground, I mean, you can say anything you want about John Diana and Buckaroo Communications, but they did change the way that magazines are done by their books. I, well, yeah. I will say that forever because they came out and everything was in color. That you know, it wasn't like we're going to put five photos for tech articles. We're going to put 50. And, uh, I mean, it was, it was a game changer. I really think it was. And, uh, I know I'm partial because I got to be part of it at one point, but, uh, you know, at that time they had Scott clean photographing for him. He was their head photographer. Uh, and I just loved his work and he was somebody that would, you know, shoot the different angle and get the close up details and, he was finding the art within the car. And there was another person I didn't know, but Steve knew him. And uh, I remember they, the very first issue of, I want to say it was Super Rod, they ran a little introduction about their staff and they had a picture of everybody. And I seen a picture of what Scott looked like. And we went to uh, Good Guys Indy in 2000. And I was walking through the manufacturer's midway and he was standing over there looking at something. And I just went up and I was like, are you Scott Colleen? And he was like, yeah, why? And I said, 
I'm a big fan of your photography. And uh, I said, you know, I won't take too much of your time because I know you're busy. But, you know, if, I said, you know, I know Steve Anderson and, and he speaks highly of you. And I said, I'm trying to, you know, become an automotive photographer. You know, if I sent you some slides to look at, would you would you be kind enough to tell me, you know, if they're absolute garbage or what I could do to, you know, improve them? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. And he gave me his card and I went home and, and, and collected what I thought was some of the better stuff I had photographed and sent it to him. And, and uh, lo and behold, you know, a couple weeks later, I get a letter back in the mail with the, with the slides and he's written some notes about, you know, you need to look at using this kind of filter and, you know, don't be afraid to shoot later in the day than what you're shooting and, and just a lot of valuable tips. And, uh, so that was kind of it. So then fast forward to, so that was 2000. And then in 2002, uh, a friend of ours was, or a friend of mine was building a car to go to Detroit and I got to shoot it before he took it up there. And I had shot just a ton of slides on it. I shot slides of the chassis when he was building it and, uh, shot the finished product and I had them all done before Detroit got here. Well, my dad and I went to the Detroit Autorama for the 50th in 2002. And that friend of mine that had the, had the car, he said that, you know, Oh, well the guys from Buckaroo were over here a little while ago and they were wanting to feature it. I said, Oh, okay. He said, maybe they'd be interested in, in, in getting yours. He says, I told him you already shot it. So, I was in one of the lounge areas for the press and uh, Scott was in there and I told him that, you know, I'd shot it and everything and appreciated all his help and wanted to know if he'd look at those. So he sat down and looked at him and, and he said, yeah, these are great. He says, uh, we'll buy this so that we don't have to shoot it. And uh, I was like, oh, that's awesome. And I didn't have to write it. All I had to do was give him a tech sheet. <laughs> so, you know, that was, that was kind of the, beginning of that and then as time progressed scott and i talked frequently and then when he got a little bit more serious about wanting to get me on as kind of a staff photographer he uh he came to a show that was close to where i lived and told me he was going to come spend a day with me and he did we we at that time i had a 58 buick and we took it out and uh he showed me all these different things I should try and, and different angles, different light uh, techniques and things like that. And uh, it really, it really helped a lot. And then at that same time, uh, the weekend leading up to that was a good guys event in Kansas city. He shot a few cars that weekend and he had me come shadow him the whole time. So I could see what he was doing. And uh, I, I tell you, I learned far more, you know, I went to college, and studied photography and I hate to say this because I love the school I went to but I learned far more from Scott in that one weekend than I ever learned in in school regarding that and, I want to touch uh, back on that though in a little bit just the school thing but okay remind me please. but uh, but uh, yeah so I had uh, at that time I was you know I was in college and I was looking for any money I could make doing freelance work so I was shooting stuff for uh, different magazines a lot that no longer exist and uh, it 
I had one company that was trying to get me to agree to work for them exclusively. And they were low budget and it wasn't the nicest magazine. But at the same time, I was like, oh, man, I'd like to have some guaranteed income every month, which is what they were promising. And uh, so I kind of said something to Scott about it. And Scott was like, what? He's like, just just wait a second. He says, let me call you right back. I'm like, all right. So he talked to John Diana, who had never met me and knew nothing about me. And Scott called me back and he said, hey, look, he says, I talked to John. We just uh, we just want to put you on a retainer so that you'll work for us. And uh, I mean, I was blown away and I couldn't believe it. And it it made me feel like maybe I was making some good progress that somebody was willing to take a chance like that on me. And uh, it was kind of one of them deals like you're going to get this much a month and I don't really have a, a a designated amount of material I expect you to supply. I just want you to make sure that, you know, whatever you're doing, you're supplying to us. So that is what really got me, you know, head first into uh, Buckaroo. And, and then when Scott left, he left right before I graduated from college. And as soon as I graduated from college, I just went full time with Buckaroo being there head photographer so it was uh it was quite an experience to say the least and, and uh, I was very blessed to have all that because I mean living in in Kansas at that time the idea of being involved with a hot rod magazine from California just seemed insane to me but somehow or another it all worked out well, it's kind of funny that that whole point in time too is when that whole Midwest explosion kind of happened in the industry. Like all these shops kind of came out of nowhere and kind of found their way into the limelight. Do, do we have you to blame for that? Are you? The one? <laughs> well, you know, that was, to me, that was one of the selling points of the fact that uh, I could be where I was because, and that was what, then that was one of the things that John told me when he called me, which was, at that time, they were still based in California. And he said, look, I think it would be great to have you where you're at because I've got guys in Florida. I've got one in Georgia. I've got one in, uh, I want to say he said New York. And uh, I need somebody in the Midwest. So, and I was like, yeah, you would be amazed if you knew half the stuff that was going on around here because I knew a lot about what, uh, what cars were being built, what shops were in the area and stuff. And that was one of the first things I did when I started working for Buckaroo was uh, I did everything I could to try and get to know every hot rod builder that was in within, you know, five hours of where I lived. And uh, of course, as you kind of said, I mean, that was I started doing everything I could to pump all of them up because those guys don't get a lot of press. The only chance they ever got for press back then was, you know, if they went to Columbus or Louisville or somewhere like that. You know, and even back in that day, Good Guys Indie was was a huge thing. And uh, that was their chance to get a magazine feature. Well, you know, now it was like, oh, I don't need to shoot it here. I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll just make a trip. I'll come up one day and we'll, you know, get a real nice background that doesn't look like I shot it behind the fair. And uh, we'll do something cool. And and uh, that that to me was one of the things that made the magazine so great was they allowed me to travel to those destiny to those guys shops and uh, 
shoot their stuff and uh, just try and make it make it just really nice. I mean, because when you went up there, I'd get up there, you know, early afternoon and I'd spend the whole day there. I mean, that was my goal was to give them the best presentation I could give them. And uh, it was a lot of fun. It just really was. That's awesome. And it's, I think it's a little known fact for a lot of hot rodders that uh, during that era, there was more corn photographed. <laughs> it's good to uh, laugh. It was, I'm it was guilty funny. of that. I will say, I I, I, I pick anyway because your your work was always awesome, and I could pick yours out from anyone's without having to read the byline. And it was always great because I'd flip it open. I'd be like, "Oh, it's got corn." It's Josh. <laughs> it like... Yeah, you know, I, one of the things that Scott taught me early on was, you know, you could use anything for a background if it was clean and it was lit right. And uh, he kind of showed me that with uh, like a rock quarry. And I think there for a while, I probably shot almost six or seven cars in a row on against rocks. And he, <laughs> he finally called me one day and he's like, hey, enough of the rocks. You got to shoot something else. So I guess I was just waiting for somebody to go, okay, enough corn and hay fields. Please stop. Find something else. So. But you took, you took some pretty iconic photos, though, in front of those rocks. Some great cars, man. I mean, dude, you, so let me, wow. It's going to be like asking you, which one's your favorite kid? What was one of your favorite shoots of all time, feature-wise? You know, the funny thing about that is I can almost always tell you something about a shoot that I wish I would have done that or, I, you know, wasn't quite happy with the way that turned out because, you know, something that, Scott used to say over and over again to me was you're only as good as the last picture you took because I'd always say I was so proud of this picture and he's like yeah but what'd you take you know recently like okay I see where you're going with that so he kind of you know I was already my my own worst critic and even to this day I'll shoot a car and I'm still you know finding things that I don't like this why didn't I do this or I wish I would have done this differently or wasn't quite happy with this. But I think the the only time I ever shot a car and just felt like everything was absolutely as perfect as it could ever be was uh, I shot a 47, I think it was a 47, it was 46 or 47 Ford Sportsman convertible for a guy named Mike Deverant that was in Colorado Springs. And... Uh, that was a photo shoot that everything was perfect. The background was perfect. The lighting was perfect. The whole day was perfect. I mean, it, there, I didn't, I walked away from that with everything I could ever wanted photo wise and, and was just not disappointed with the results. And it's kind of funny because <clears throat> when he finished the car, I knew I wanted to photograph it because, uh, I talked to him regularly and he told me he was building this car. And I mean, if, I don't know if any of you know who he is or not, but, he, in the Colorado Springs area, I mean, he he had his finger on all the really good vintage tin. And he had some of the coolest vintage hot rod parts that there was. And I remember him telling me he was building this 47, I think I'm pretty sure it was a 47 Ford Sportsman. And that he had a, you know, Arden flathead, a real deal with, uh, uh, he had a Columbia Overdrive and whole nine yards and uh, that he'd collected every little piece for it. And I told him, you know, I just can't wait to see it done. Well, he got it done and he brought it to 
the Mid America Street Ride Nationals in uh, Springfield, Missouri, and we both were going to shoot it that weekend. And the car was black, and at that time he had black wall tires on it, and the wheels were dark as well. I think the car was still killer, but uh, we went to shoot it, and the light went flat, and it just I was just so disappointed in it. And I was like, I, I said, I got to be honest with you, Mike. I, I, this isn't going to happen. I don't like the way it's looking. I, I just don't want to do this. I said, um, you know, so instantly we start going, what other shows are you going to? You know, we need to figure out a way to do this. And, and then I had remembered when I was in high school, uh, my photography teacher had told me about a place in western Kansas that kind of looked like, you know, parts of Utah. And, you know, as you kind of alluded to a few minutes ago, most of Kansas is wheat fields and corn. So, and it's flat. So the idea that there was something that looked like the desert in Western Kansas seemed kind of ridiculous, but I had remembered, you know, looking it up and it was, it was awesome looking, but you know, it was kind of in the middle of nowhere. And I was like, it'd be cool to shoot a car there, but how would I ever get anybody to go there? So I looked at a like MapQuest or something like that and found out that it was exactly halfway between where Mike lived and I lived. So I asked him, I said, would, would you consider meeting me there, you know, one day to do this? I said, cause I've always wanted to shoot a car there. And he was like, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, luckily he trailered the car because uh, one of the things I didn't realize was because of where it was at, you had to drive basically on, I think, three or four miles of dirt to get to it. But uh, we got out there and it was, it was spectacular. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine that it was going to turn out as well as it did. But I mean, that was probably the most thrilled I ever was with, uh, with a feature. And, you know, I couldn't wait to turn it in and everything. And, and that was right when Buckaroo was going under. So it didn't make it to print with Buckaroo, but you know, silver lining, especially for, uh, Mike, the owner, uh, I felt it was a car worthy of Broder's journal. So I sent some images of it to, uh, Steve Coonan and Steve was like, I'll take that. I'll run it. And uh, he ended up running it in uh, Broder's journal. So that was the first time I ever photographed anything that was in Broder's journal. And, uh, I was just, I was really pleased with the way that one turned out. And that's kind of the you hate to try and compare everything you, sh you do to one thing, but I mean, that's kind of the, the standard I compare every shoot to is like, Oh, was it as, you know, it was good, but was it as good as the sportsman convertible? So I got, I got a, I got a question for you. Since since I'm sitting here, I haven't asked any questions yet. Um, you, <laughs> hey, you were, Brad. <laughs> hey, I'm here. Uh, you were out, you were out <laughs> obviously out in the wild shooting stuff all over the place. Did you once, uh, once Scott left, did you get a chance to work in the studio very much at all to, uh, to do any fill in stuff or was there a lot of studio stuff going on? You know, at that time there wasn't, uh, when, well, when Buckaroo was in California, they had a studio and the only time I ever went to Buckaroo, uh, I'm trying to think I went once when I was still in college and then I went, uh, maybe one or two times afterwards, uh, one of the, there was an event that uh, will remain nameless that Buckaroo put on that was 
uh, let's just say it wasn't very well attended. And they had all of us out there for, and uh, one of the cars that was selected at the event, we shot in the studio uh, that following week. And at that time they had Mike Chase doing studio work. So Mike did the studio work and uh, I kind of shadowed him. But as far as actually shooting a whole car in the studio, I, I never got to, uh, to do that because uh, once I kind of went on full time, they had relocated to Dayton, Tennessee, and uh, they didn't have a studio. And, and I tried a lot to try and find somewhere to put one in the Midwest. But, uh, man, that's a lot of a lot of overhead costs that, you know, I didn't want to pay for by myself. So but uh, through school and uh, trial and error, I had learned how to use studio lights and have actually, you know, that's actually come in really handy with uh, working at advanced plating because uh, I've photographed all of their chrome parts, you know, using studio lights on tabletops. And uh, they also do custom guitars and I've photographed all the guitars and, and you know, having that knowledge for studio lights has, has come in really handy. But uh, it has it kind of always been one of those, I don't want to say bucket list type things, but I would love to have, you know, a car in a studio to myself for a few days with everything I need because I would love to try and, and uh, do some studio work because I've I've long admired the work of somebody like uh, there's a photographer back east named uh, Michael Furman and he does a lot of like Pebble Beach type stuff and his stuff is just phenomenal every time I look at it I'm like to achieve that in a studio. I mean, everybody's like, oh, well, you know, you had studio lights, but it's not that easy. I mean, it's, there's a, there's a lot of thought that goes into it to pull it off right. And, and he's somebody that just does an amazing job. And, and, you know, in, in the hot rod world, you, you can look at somebody like Coonan or uh, Scott Williamson. Scott Williamson's another one who does incredible uh, studio work. And I, you know, I'd love to, to do that, but uh, have just always been, the outdoor guy, so to speak. So, <laughs> well, that's, and that's hard. See, the studio thing is not that it's easier, but it is easier because you can control the lighting. You can control the shadows because you're making the lighting, you're making the shadows. And, uh, when you're out in a, you know, a quarry or up against a cornfield, it's on you. You got to make, you got to make it happen with what you have to work with, which is, you know, the sun. So, you know, you had a little harder deal. Yeah, I always said that the sky was my light box, and and uh, I mean every time I'd go to shoot, I was, I I mean I'm even to this day I'm still nervous when I go to do a shoot, just wondering what the weather's going to do because I have in my head how the weather condition needs to be when I do it, and and uh, I will let that bug me. And the the funny thing is, I I haven't been a full time automotive photographer for ten years now. And I still have nightmares that I'm trying to go shoot a car and the light is disappearing before I can get to the, <laughs> get to the location. I mean, I would, I would have, have thought you... those, those days would have been gone by now, but no, they're still right there. Have you, uh, have you ever used a target bag for a light box? I haven't quite tried that yet, but, uh, I have done some, some weird things with, uh, trying to bounce flash through, uh, like, uh, paper towels and other weird things that uh, didn't quite yield the results that I thought they would. <laughs> so, 
He's he's making fun of me with the with the with the bag thing, and I'll have to show you. When we get the other one of these. I'll show you what he's talking about, and they work quite well. But <laughs> I can imagine it would little, work. Little it would different. Work well, deal. yeah. It, it's no Kroger bag, but you know it's. Kroger <laughs> bag. You know, when you don't have a you know ten grand for a set of lights. You kind of learn how to make do. So you, it's one yeah, we all know, we all know that Target has the. Uh, properly white balance that's right balance they have the white balance <laughs> soft white <laughs> yeah, i love is doing that, that to the, to the bag guys that? <laughs> the cashier what what, what is the uh <laughs> what's, what's what's the, the kelvin that's on the kelvin is light when it passes through this sack this isn't the right kelvin i need a different bag she starts bagging your groceries and you're like no no not that one no not not that one. Oh yeah that one the that fourth one, one down yeah yeah <laughs> Let me get my meter out to check it. <laughs> so, let the wow. We're we're really taking this thing, and we're we're kind of going in a, a weird Tarantino fashion here. We're going backwards in time. Sorry, <laughs> but um, as far as uh, as far as schooling went, you and I both have kind of a, a similar background with having done the uh, the art school thing, and it's always been a, a great a great series of inside jokes between you and I. <laughs> uh, which is a fantastic bit of camaraderie. Um, it, looking at this from like a, a career guidance counselor standpoint, because like I said, in, one of the things we like to do in the podcast is give kind of tips and tricks to someone out there. Um, I, I know my feelings on this I've made known quite a bit. Uh, as far as your schooling goes, I mean, I, we all take something out of it. I, I think if you spent money on school and you come away and you go, well, that was garbage. You, you've really missed the point. But, I mean, if you had it all to do again, knowing where you wanted to be in a career, assuming you know that, because, I mean, hell, I'm 46 years old and I still have no concept of where I want to be. Hell, I spend my Tuesday nights talking on a podcast. So. <laughs> um, if, if you could do it again, though, would you follow the same path you did through school? Or would you would you alter that in some way? You know, that's... The interesting thing about that is I know there was a point where I was really busy with Buckaroo kind of in my junior year at college. And uh, I thought, well, I, you know, I, just, I just need to go full time and, and be done with this. But uh, it was kind of like a self goal that I was going to get a degree, mostly because I don't at that point in time, you know, neither one of my parents had went to college and, and, uh, I know it was kind of one of the things that my father always wanted to see happen, but it, it was a goal for me too, that I was going to complete. So, you know, I decided to complete and, and, and did, and honestly, yeah, I, I, I don't think it was a mistake. I mean, obviously, it, you know, it was a lot of money, but, uh, which I want to thank my mom and dad for that big shout out to them. But, Excellent. uh, and, uh, but I, I learned a lot from it. I really did. And as much as, as, uh, maybe it didn't always, you know, have an angle towards the things I cared for the most. And maybe they didn't quite appreciate seeing, you know, picture after picture of a car, uh, the way that I hope they would. I still learned a lot from it because, you know, before I was ever into, into, 
photography. I took private art lessons that my grandparents sent me to. Uh, started out drawing and, and, you know, painting and, you know, doing three-dimensional type stuff. And took every art class in high school and just enjoyed you know, doing art, so to speak. And, uh, you know, if I didn't go to college, I would have never met my wife, for one thing. So I, I would have to say I absolutely had to go to college. So, And I would do it again because you learn a lot about to, to me, the thing that I and that I've never—I don't want to say I'm not that well with criticism, but I'm kind of hard with you know. With uh, I don't want to say it's like my way or the highway or anything like that, but you know I have strong feelings about whatever it was I did, and uh, you know, an art faculty is always really quick to put you in your place, and like <laughs> let you know that it's it's not the best <laughs> thing ever created and. Uh, I think that's really good because, you know, even when you, you know, try and get a job with a magazine, they're going to let you know that your stuff's garbage if it is, you know. So it, it was really good to, uh, I guess, toughen you up, so to speak, and be prepared for the fact that not everything's going to be 100%, you know, so. Right on. Yeah, I, you know, we, we've talked about this before. One of the big things I always took out of college was that it, it kind of fed my brain that you know, I, I wanted to learn as much as I could about everything. We had the drilled into us in high school. I had teachers that were like, you're going to be a renaissance man and learn all that you can. And it was later on, it's really good for um, applying for Jeopardy, um, <laughs> winning at trivia night, <laughs> that kind of stuff, and, and giving you a different outlook too. Um I said, I, I just, I think it's important that people hear that. I mean, because today there's a lot of talk. It's, oh, don't go spend all of your money on college. And like that. There, there's a value in it. There, there's definitely value. But I think you need to choose, again, the right school for yourself. I mean, well, and, and I, think the, I think the other thing I would add to that is that be, I didn't just go to a school where I photographed on photography. Obviously, that was where my main interest lied. But in order to get a BFA, I had to take a number of, of art courses, oh, yeah. which all interested me. Now, the benefit to that is, you know, I can do other things besides photography. You know, for example, I do art because I know how to use Photoshop and Illustrator and things like that. You know, I do a lot of our ads at Advanced Plating and, you know, handouts and things like that. So it gives you another skill set. You know, you, you can think that, you know, you're going to, be a photographer forever but you know in my case that wasn't you know I wasn't going to be an automotive photographer forever and uh, it was nice to have other skills that I knew I could put to use and, and had I just been like oh, I'm going to go work full-time taking pictures I wouldn't have had that uh, had that you know so in my in, in my back pocket so to speak so I definitely think I gained a lot out of it not only that, but, you know, it helps, it helps you be more, I don't want to say social, but you just understand the interactions better of, of what you like about how to properly critique something and, and, uh, you know, just understand the, the dynamics of design and, and how to, I don't know, there's, there's just, I know I'm going left and right, left and right, but there was, there was a lot of stuff I felt I gained from it and, and would not discourage anybody from it. 
Definitely. And I, I always wonder today, like, especially with the way people are so disconnected and everybody just works on, you know, social media and they're really quick to, to just be, for lack of a better word, a total douche to other people. I always wondered what critiques would be like today with those people in one room, how awesome that would be and the passive aggressiveness that would just be. <laughs> there was, when I was in college, there was a, there was a student that took a, a it was really it was a strange time because when I was in college, that was when we were making the shift from from you know film to digital, and they weren't really offering any digital stuff. But uh, you know, I wanted to do color photography, and the only way they'd let me do it was if I did Cibachromes, which is really old school. But that was I spent the money and bought the paper and that's what I did. Well, then there was another student that got somehow or another weaseled their way into doing uh, like a digital photography deal that I don't even know how they convinced anybody on it, but they come to the critique and they put up their work and uh, the whole time I'm standing there looking at it, I'm like, Oh my God, those are like, that's like a one click filter in, in Photoshop, you know? And, and I'm, I'm kind of like what you're talking about where I'm thinking, Oh, there's so many things I want to just bust out and say, but you know, I'm not going to do that right in front of everybody. And then luckily, uh, one of my friends apparently must've been thinking the same thing because as soon as the uh, faculty said, so what is everybody's opinion on it? He goes, those are one click filters in Photoshop. That's nothing special. (laughs) And, and looking at our fellow classmate, look at him. I, I knew what it was like to have somebody stare at you and wish that you were dead. So it was, it, you know, like you were saying on the internet, everybody just busts out and says whatever they want. Cause they're, you know, behind the protection of their phone or keyboard or whatever. But uh, yeah, you don't just jump up and say stuff like that right in the, in the middle of a critique. You gotta, you gotta listen and, and figure out how to, you know, well, you know, to me, it looks like maybe you only use one or two filters. Do you think maybe there's something else you could have done there? You know, you, you learn the right ways to try and uh, uh, get more out of people, I guess, so to speak. So. <laughs> and the other thing, too, is that when you have a balance like that in a, in a whole series of courses, because, I mean, you take, you know, 2D design, you're, you're taking sculpture classes, things like that, it gives you a whole better way to look at things and appreciate and understand form. So, I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, I would say, you know, from my point of view, my fine art training definitely helped me. Obviously, you took a lot out of it, which is amazing. And, you know, keeping on the, the education theme for a moment, uh, you are actively involved in the, uh, the Hot Rod Alliance uh, via SEMA with uh, the Education Days. What can you tell me about that? Uh, that is correct. Um, I got elected to the uh, Hot Rod Industry Alliance. Uh, I'm trying to think. I'm coming up on a full two years. And uh, recently, well, just this last year, as a matter of fact, uh, Joe Petlick, who was on the uh, Alliance, terrific guy, he had been in charge of the uh, education days at uh, the Street Rod Nationals in Louisville. And when he figured out he was terming out, the, the chair asked me if I'd be interested in taking over. And, and of course, I was absolutely excited to take that project on because 
when I was trying to get elected to the committee, that was one of the things I pushed was, you know, anything that would try and help get the younger generation involved, which, you know, maybe trying to get the, uh, the group at the streetwide nationals, isn't the place you're going to find all the, uh, the younger crowd, but it's definitely a segue into, uh, to try and help educate and spread more about the uh, hot rod industry. So essentially what the event is, it's split over two days and we have manufacturers come and they do one hour seminars where they discuss a topic related to, to what they do. I don't want to say that they do a sales pitch because that's not exactly what it is. Um, you know, if, if Will Woods given a, given a, a a seminar, they're going to talk about brakes and brake issues. They're not going to talk about, let me tell you why our brake package is superior and you should be buying it. It doesn't work like that. And, uh, you know, the same could be said for vintage air. He's going to talk about air conditioning and the things that you need to do to make the air conditioning work. And the thing that I think is so valuable about it is it doesn't cost you anything to go to this other than, you know, you've got to be at the street ride nationals. So whatever the entry fee is, you don't have to have a car entered you can buy a ticket at the front gate and just walk in and go to this and it's free to everybody and it's it's a really great way to to get one-on-one -on -one, uh, information about things that you know issues that you could be facing in your own garage and uh, I think we have I want to say 12 presenters total I think it's uh, I think it's six a day I need to look at the the sheet because we've been trying to get it uh, narrowed down to what our lineup is for this coming year. But uh, I was really honored to get to take that project over and uh, just doing what I can to try and help uh, get our attendance up and, and uh, get it to grow. Uh, last year we had a little over 800 people attend over the, uh, over the two days and uh, hoping to hit a thousand this year with, uh, with it being the 50th street ride nationals so but uh, definitely want to invite anybody who goes to the street ride nationals this coming year to please come to the hot rod in industry alliance education days and uh, attend a seminar too because uh, it's it's really great information and uh, we just appreciate your support awesome man thank you um so gosh okay so you're, you're doing all this stuff obviously at uh at, at a big show like the uh, the Street Ride Nationals and things like that. So just kind of making a really smooth segue into that, What what's one of the things you see um, trending finish-wise uh, as far as uh, plating or polishing or, hell, just that that came out really smooth any kind of what do, you, what do you see trending as far as you know like like trim finishes and things like that at shows yeah. where do you see that going yeah. in the next couple of years you know uh one of the one of the slogans i've been using in our ads recently is that it's that chrome's always in style you know no matter what chrome's always in style you can't go wrong with chrome you can probably use too much chrome but uh you can never, Chrome doesn't go out of style, but, uh, you know, we definitely over the last couple of years, I can tell you have had way more requests for brush nickel or satin nickel than, uh, 
than we used to. And they're really difficult finishes to, to pull off correctly. And, uh, it's, it's kind of one of them things that I remember when Steve showed me all the different finishes he could do, I was like, man, we gotta be, you know, advertising this and getting this out to people because, you know, this is what's going to set us apart is that, you know, we can do these things and a lot of other people aren't doing them. And, uh, then I realized once, once I got people to start committing to these finishes, and then I would be the one that had to do part of them that I kind of wished I wouldn't have been pushed. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, I, I enjoy the creativity that comes with uh, brush nickel and satin nickel and, and uh, alternative finishes that we have because uh, it gets you, it allows you to add another dimension to the part and. Uh, I think one of the first people that that uh, did something with with advanced plating while I was there that kind of encouraged that was uh, Troy Trepanier when he was doing the uh, nailed Buick, which I think you were involved with, Brian. Right on. Yeah, you and I you and I spent a couple of afternoons going over finishes and things like that for that car. Yeah, Mark that owned it was uh, he was really interested in a black nipple finish that we had. And, uh, and of course, Troy, you know, he, he liked satins and he liked, you know, brushed. And so he was, he was all about trying to combine the finishes on a part. And, you know, traditionally it was always, you know, well, you just do the whole bumper in that, or you do the whole door handle in that. And, uh, you know, Troy was kind of like, you do whatever you, you know, you want. So I'd run something by him and he was like, no, that sounds cool. Let's do it. So, uh, yeah, I remember he, I'd only been there a couple months and he was like, yeah, do, do whatever you want. So I remember I took the, uh, interior door handles and, and, uh, window cranks and they had like a raised ridge on them and masked that off and brushed that. And then we black nickeled it. So the rest of it was shiny and stuff. And I just thought that was like the coolest thing ever. And, and, uh, and, you know, Troy really liked it and, we did a lot of stuff like that with that car and then we did more of that going forward and and you know that was just as cool as it was it's a lot of work to tape all that off and and pull those finishes off because you do one thing wrong and you end up nickel buffing it and starting over again and i guarantee you that there's it's fun to push the limits of plating and it's it's cool to see that so many people are digging brushed finishes and satin finishes but oh man some of my worst nightmares have been parts that had those finishes on <laughs> now you guys are a business that uh you you guys do a lot of things that you know say i'm out in california i need you guys to do something special for me and i gotta box it up and send it to you uh what kind of uh, tips can you give to somebody that's about ready to send you a part? Because I'm sure there's probably some things that can be done at the, uh, by the owner that would sure make it a lot easier for you guys once you get the part. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the main thing is completely disassembling your parts as far as you can take them apart. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've got a bumper in that still had brackets attached to it. I'm not going to chrome plate the brackets, and you don't want to spend the money to follow the brackets. Take them off. Those are handles. Those and, are, uh... You know, I mean, things like that. Or, you know, they want to chrome plate the uh, 
the vent window post, but they don't take the vent window glass and everything else out of it. It's like <laughs> you can just you mask really that need off, to right? Take stuff apart as far as you can. It won't stick know? to glass. You just peel it right off. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> the other thing you need to do is is you need to make a detailed list of what you're sending because there is if the box arrives and it's got a hole in it, I have nothing to gauge what was in the box yeah. or if it's all there if I don't have a packing slip. Right. And we get a lot of stuff that just shows up and the only information we have is whatever the return address is on the front of it. Yeah. So it's very cr crucial that you, uh, you know, make a packing list and include your contact information and what kind of service you're looking to have done. And I, I will say I've got a few customers that are excellent at they take pictures of everything they send and I get copies of the pictures along with the packing list and that helps out tremendously. Yeah, I know that uh, the latest trend is tucked and tight and fitted bumpers. And um, I know you probably get to see some of these things that have big booger welds hanging over the outside of it. And it's up to you guys to perform magic on it and make them all smooth and pretty. Um, what kind of stories do you have about some of that kind of stuff? Well, I don't want to name names and point fingers, but uh, <laughs> definitely seen... Let's just say I've seen a wide spectrum of uh, fabrication skills, to say the least. <laughs> it's funny because I, I know you, I'm sure one of you guys have seen that meme that goes around where it's like a real nice, clean, you know, row of nickels in terms of, you know, TIG welding and yeah. then it's just clobbered together. And it says the difference between a professional and an amateur. And uh, I mean, that's, that couldn't be further. I mean, that's, that's so true because... Uh, I, I, I know I've been able to do that just in the polishing room, go over and look at this bumper that's been modified and go over and look at this one and be like, those are at the complete opposite ends of the spectrum. And, you know, not the dog guys, because I mean, you know, they're doing the best that they can and they're, you know, they're hoping that we're going to work our magic on them. And, uh, you know, that's what, what we try to do is provide a piece of jewelry when we're done with it. So, uh, I can't really knock a guy for you know, not having, you know, a piece that looks like, uh, you know, Marcel made it. But uh, <laughs> the, the, the thing with, with modifying bumpers that's very important is if you're going to modify a bumper, you should get it electro stripped before you modify it. Because a lot of people think, oh, I'll just grind down that area and weld it. Well, I understand your theory of thought on that, but the problem is when you go to electro strip a bumper, the electro strip does not know that this area is bare and this area has got plating on it. It just knows it's going to strip and it's going to keep eating at it until it's done. And what you end up happening is you end up with a giant lake wherever it was that you ground all that out and, uh, and welded on it. So you've created a big deficit that you have to overcome. And a lot of times the only way you're ever going to overcome that is by putting a lot of lead solder over that area and air filing it out. So, you know, when a guy sends something in and he's like, oh, man, how could that cost that much to do that? And it's like, well, <laughs> look, after they spend the hours it's going to take to not only air file it, by the time they, you know, use half a roll of lead solder to fix that. I mean, it's it's it becomes really time consuming and that's and that's what makes those things cost so much. Is, and that's the thing with with 
with us in particular is we quote the parts right up front. So if you send it in and it's modified and I look at it and say it's going to cost this much money, that's the price it's going to be even when it's done. If I get into it and it's, you know, way worse and, and turns into a bigger product or bigger project than we intended, uh, you know, unfortunately, advanced plating is going to eat that. We're not going to call you and say, look, it's going to be this much more money. So it's kind of a guessing game. And it, it, and it always cracks me up because, you know, you'll tell a guy, well, I don't know how, how difficult it's going to be. I'm kind of guessing it's going to take this long. And they'll go, well, if it, uh, if it ends up being easier, do you think it'll be less? Uh, no. If it ends up being harder, do you want me to call you and tell you it's going to be more? Well, no. Okay, so yeah, let's come to terms on that. So, but uh, you know, if you, if you get your if you get going back to modifying a bumper, if you get your bumper electro strip to start with, and you got clean steel to work with, uh, you'll be miles ahead when it comes because you can cut your bumper, weld it together, and the other thing we recommend is don't even grind your welds. Just weld it and leave the weld. I don't care how inexperienced you think your welds are, just leave them because our guys can know when to, I guess they will know when to stop when they're grinding on it mm -hmm. so that uh, they don't go too far because, you know, your initial reaction when you're grinding a weld is, oh man, I'm going to blend this right in and you end up going just a little too far for what we're doing. So definitely always recommend people, you know, electro strip to start with and leave their welds and then let us take care of the rest. So that's, that's, that's a big thing right there. That's actually good to know. I, I never would have known, known that either one of those. That's, that's actually a good thing. Yeah. You know, you, you, tr you try and share that information as much as you can. And, and I sometimes think, you know, everybody's gonna be like, Oh, I've heard that before. I think you've told me that before, but uh, it's just one of them things. that's like, I can't stress that enough. Just, get your bumper strip before, before you go cutting <laughs> on it. So in your guys' business, your lead solder and your uh, and your copper are pretty much your fillers. So those are the materials that you can work with to kind of bring it back down and get it straight. How many times can a part be put back through copper uh, <laughs> to get it built up? Well, I mean, I mean is, is, there, is there no end to it? Or it can go yeah, in I as mean, many that, times as, kind of a, as it's needed? That's a question like how long is a piece of rope? I mean, it, it's... Yeah. <laughs> And then, that, and to me, that's where the money is involved in, in getting something done. That's getting that sort of end of it is, you know, See, the last two, the last two steps, the nickel and the chrome are pretty much dunking. It's up to the copper point is where all the work's done. Yeah. I mean, and that's the, you can look at, at, at it kind of as the, the way you would look at, at, at a paint job, so to speak. I mean, cause you get a lot of people that are like, oh, it's really good. You just need to dip it, which. Uh, platers absolutely hate to hear. <laughs> we hate the term dip it. You know, everybody's dip like, it. oh yeah, you just dip it. And uh, <laughs> the, the, the thing is, imagine if you, if you had a car with a quarter panel and it was rusted and you just painted over it, no matter how high quality of paint you used, it's still going to look like, you know, garbage in that area. Yeah. It's all about the prep work. You know, it's all about the metal finishing. It's all about all the base work you do on it before you put that final finish on it. And that's very much the way chrome plating is. I mean, I had, I tried to do an article with a classic car magazine about, uh, 
the difference. They said the difference between show chrome and triple plating. And I, and I said, well, there's, there's a conundrum there because when people hear triple plating or they hear show plating, they think that, you know, they think they're one and the same. And that's not really the case because as I was pointing out there in that example was that if you don't do all the, all the base work for it, you're not going to get the, if the end results. I mean, I could take, take the part, put copper, nickel and chrome on it. And it's not going to be show because it has to have all of the, uh, all the prep work done on it in order for it to look like show. So yes, it's triple plated, but is it show plating? No, because show plating has see, and that's just like a vicious circle trying to explain that because a bumper is going to get more than three, than three chimes through plating. I'm not going to put copper on it, nickel and chrome it and I'm done with it. Chances are it's probably going to go copper three times and much like I, I hate to compare copper to body filler because you don't get that much build out of it. You can think of it more probably like a high build primer, mm -hmm. so to speak, but very much in the way that you do body work, you're going to, the, the polisher is going to sand 75% uh, of it off. So parts are getting plated, you know, eight, nine, 10 times basically. So when somebody says triple plating, I mean, that, that I don't really put much stock in that. You say show plating, then I figure, yeah, you're probably doing all the, all the work to make it look like what it needs to. And uh, it's, it's all the prep work because if the, if the polisher doesn't make the part as perfect as he can before he starts putting plating on it, you're, you're never going to overcome the imperfections that are in it. And also saying that you are, they are able to use copper to help give them some meat, so to speak, to uh, uh, sand off and shape. So I don't even know if I answered your question at this no, point. No, no, you did. No, now that exactly, I've rambled exactly on. Right. So. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, there was another question I had. When you, when you look at store-bought chrome, say you go to like a restoration uh, house that sells bumpers, I've been noticing lately that the bumpers have a black cast to them, whereas good quality chrome has a blue cast to it. Is there anything in the chrome process that differentiates those two colors? Uh, or is it just something I'm looking at and I'm seeing, or is that something that's real? Well, I mean, I, I do kind of think that, that chrome is a lot like, uh, like if I said paint a car black, you know, there's, there's endless shades of black so mm -hmm. black is not black when you when you paint a car i mean it, you could have five cars parked next to each other and they're not going to match and, and to me i feel chrome's kind of the same way because i can look at other you know chrome plated bumpers or stuff and uh, look at it now technically there's really only two types of chrome there's hexavalent and trivalent hexavalent is is uh, what people kind of refer to as old school chrome it has that Kind of bluish tint to it. Okay. And uh, hexavalent's got more of a warm tone to it. The some of the differences is, I mean, if you hear hexavalent chromium, you instantly, you know, think of all kinds of horror stories. Which, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's it's the lesser friendly of the two chromes as far as the EPA is concerned. But uh, the the advantages of hexavalent are 
you know, it has more parts per million. It has better depth, clarity, uh, and has that, you know, real pretty tint to it when it's done. Uh, you know, nothing against hex valent because I've seen some, or, or trivalent, I mean, because I've seen some very well done trivalent, but trivalent just doesn't have that, uh, this doesn't have the depth to me that, mm -hmm. uh, right. that hexavalent has. And the other thing is, you know, chrome is essentially a transparent deposit. So depending on what kind of a nickel solution you're using, that will also affect uh, the appearance of it as well. So you're probably not crazy that you think you've seen some darker <laughs> tinted. Yeah, yeah it's almost, it's, yeah. It's so almost yeah, like Alex, the, was that did, outside or indoors? You know? Well, um, on that, on that subject then, so gosh, do you, I mean, obviously you could tell by looking back at, you know, what technologies were used at what time a, a vehicle was produced. So if you're doing restoration work, you know, do you guys, can you guys recommend to someone if they say, oh, I want this, this kind of plating on it. Can you always go, no, it would look better and closer to stock if we went with this process instead. Is that, is that a common thing that happens? You know, not, not really. And, and, I, and I think the reason for that is because, I mean, anything that's being restored nowadays, other than maybe Corvettes, uh, everybody over restores. Right. I mean, the, the, the stuff's nicer than it ever was. So a lot of guys, it's, it's just make it look the absolute best it can. And I mean, uh, I know that we have done some show bumpers for like, some guys that have done uh, GTOs and things where we've actually sandblasted the whole backside of the bumper after it was plated so that it had a, you know, even consistent look on the backside like it was just plated, uh, you know, a raw factory core. And uh, so people are more concerned with quality, I would say, than actually replicating what would have been stock. I mean, you know, that's apparent with paint jobs and gap fitment and things like that. Yeah. Cause yeah. I guarantee you, you know, half the cars you see at uh, uh, Concord are <laughs> far better than anybody at sure. GM Chrysler or Ford could have ever, ever yeah. anticipated they'd be. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was just, I was really intrigued though, because you get a lot of seventies cars and the Chrome was, um, yeah, not, not so nice. And I wondered, no, you, have you been handed anything like that where somebody says, well, it's a, you know, a 74 Cutlass. Can you make the rear bumper look like it would just before it rots off the back of the car and falls down the street? But no, you know, we have done uh, aged chrome. Uh, <laughs> believe the, it or not. the rust is built in. Chrome there's Tina. No, there's no rust in it, but... <laughs> Because Shady of, chic chrome. Because <laughs> of our involvement in, uh, in guitar parts, the uh, the guitar industry loves, you know, aged hardware. So they want a guitar that looks like it's been played for 30 years. So Steve kind of came up with these ways to make, you know, nickel look like it was old and dingy. And they, he's done the same with chrome. So we have done a few aged chrome, but nothing with like, you know, rust and... and garbage like that on it but uh i am surprised at at uh, some of the things that are not necessarily things but cars that people will spend the money to restore 
or, you know, redo the bumpers on or things like that. Because, I mean, we all kind of have things that we think are, you know, our favorite kind of car and we find is valuable. And then there's probably other brands that you think of and you're like, why would anybody ever spend their time or money to do that? But those cars all mean something to somebody. So, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to judge why somebody would want to spend, you know, three grand doing bumpers for a 84 Cadillac. But, you know, that, that car meant something to them somehow, whether it was, you know, their dad's car or, you know, maybe they went on their first date with their wife in that car or something. But, uh, one thing I learned, you know, that this job kind of taught me was that, you know, nothing will come between a person spending their money on, on something that they truly love and enjoy, no matter what it is, no matter what you think of it. So, yeah. Well, that's awesome. And I, I like the fact that, you know, you're treating every part equal like that. I mean, I just, I always imagine the back of my head as kind of some, you know, bad movie idea where, you get a part in there and you're like, oh, we all hate this builder. So there's a bunch of guys lined up taking a leak into one of the tanks. <laughs> Our bumper has kind of a yellow tinge to it. What do you think, Alex? <laughs> yeah, I like it. Not quite that bad, but, you know, there. I will say there's parts that, you know, go round and round and round and round and round where, you know, the polisher, every time he sees it, he's gritting his teeth and mad that it's coming back. But, you know, he puts his head down and, and focuses on it because, like, I'm always telling him, like, just think how good it's going to feel when it's finally out of here, you know. Just just do your best on it and just think of how good it's going to be when it leaves, you know. I, it, I can imagine. I can imagine, like, some of those hood birds, those pot metal hood birds. I can't imagine doing one of those. That's got to be a nightmare. Well, you know, in, in, in Detroit cars are the worst. I mean, that's that's the nitpickiest of the nitpickiest. I mean, and, and that's, we, we only do show Chrome at advanced plating, but, uh, we do, we do kind of, uh, if a car's going to Detroit, it has kind of an extra level of, of detail paid to it that, uh, that most stuff doesn't. And, and don't get me wrong. That's, you know, that's reflected when they're, uh, when the stuff's written up because we know that's what they're going for and, and they've expressed that they want it to be absolutely the best they can. And, you know, it's, you guys would be astonished if you see some of the stuff we reject because we just don't think that the customer is going to be, you know, this guy's going to Detroit and he's probably not going to be happy with this. And it's like, you know, it's a spec on the, you know, on the lower corner of it or something like that. And you're like, I don't know, is that good enough? Or do we let that go? And, 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 uh, you know, that's, and it's the type of thing I'd show you and you'd be like that you want to, you don't, you want to redo it because of that. And, and that was a lesson I had to learn at working there was, you know, you could reject it because of that little spot. And then the next time it comes out now, that little spots over on the main face and it's more present than it was the last time. <laughs> so you have to learn like, like when the point is to stop and go, okay, this is probably the best it's ever going to be and, and, uh, and let it go. So, well, it, it, it's amazing because every year, if you look at like the great eight cars, I, I venture to say, man, if not all of them, then probably two thirds to three quarters of those cars, they're, they're all featuring parts plated by you guys. And hell, you, you guys even, you guys even plate the award itself. So that's, yeah, huh? 
that says a whole lot about your work. So, man. It, uh, uh, in the time I've, you know, we've always plated the, uh, the Riddler Award, well, for at least the last uh, 18 years or so, I think. But uh, in the time I've been there, we've also, we also did the restoration on the, uh, on the AMVR trophy a couple years ago, too. And wow, I, I I think that says a lot about about the company that Steve's built is that you know those kind of things were entrusted to us you know restoring the AMVR trophy and then every year plating the uh, the Riddler trophy and I remember doing some of our social media and sharing a picture of the Riddler award and saying that we plated it and I remember you know we're talking about people comment and stuff I remember there was a guy that commented he's like is that a big deal or something I mean. So what? You played at the award. I'm like, okay, so maybe maybe it's not that big of a deal to you, but you know, it is the most. It's one of the most prestigious awards in the hot rod community, and, and they had to pick somebody to play it, and they picked us. So of course, then your trophy only got third place, though. So you know, it's, yeah, there's that. I think it'd be a great response to that. Would have been <laughs> well if these guys didn't mess it up every year. We wouldn't have to keep replating it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it, the the Detroit thing is uh, it's one of them things that I enjoy and and just you know and, and have moments of displeasure with all the cars that we do for it because it's as much as I enjoy it and I enjoy the excitement and the creativity aspect that that goes into it. I mean, it's it's definitely a lot of stress on Steve, the crew. Uh, any of us sales guys that are involved with it and, and a lot, you know, it's a lot of communication. It's a lot of long phone calls and, and, uh, you know, cause it's, everybody wants to feel important when they're doing something of that, of that level. And, and it's, it's a real balancing act to make sure that you, you get everybody the right amount of time so that they feel like they, they're, you know, they've trusted the right people to, to take care of it. So, and, and, you know, as well as, all of you know as well as I do that uh, no builder ever gets anything done, you know, with ample time left before a show. So we're always doing parts right up until you know a couple days before Detroit. So well, you just got to watch reality TV and you'll see that it's always Thursday. Well, hey, wait, wait, we're living that right now with us. <laughs> <laughs> we are that Thursday. <laughs> No, 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 no. We're not going to say anything bad about that ever again. Uh, okay, okay. Never, never mind. Forget I said that. <laughs> we are that group. So, uh, you know, one thing we didn't touch on there real quick before we wrap. Um, you had mentioned earlier you had a, a car sitting out in front of the uh, the shop when the unfortunate <laughs> tragedy struck in August. Uh, what have you got in your stable right now, sir? Anything fun? I, I have a... 57 Chrysler 300C convertible. Oh. You, you, sir, you and I have wow. that, that affinity for that whole era. That's that's one of the things we kind of connected on early on in, in our friendship. Oh, I love those cars. I mean, anything Exner era is just uh, absolutely my favorite. I mean, I, and I, I, very rarely is there a car that I don't like. I mean, I can tell you that, but definitely anything with tail fins is just right up my alley. And, and I felt nobody got it better during that period than Chrysler. Right on. Always, uh, man. Always one of the best. So, and one of the questions. So, knowing that, 
What is your dream car, man? I, I always want to ask one of these dopey questions because we never do that on the podcast. It's either going to well, be that or if you were a vegetable, what kind of vegetable would you be? <laughs> That's a Ooh. tough question. Both of them are tough questions. Or let's take this further. Knowing how you pick out the details in cars versus the entire car. If you were served an antipasto, what's the first thing you look at? <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely the curve of the cavatappi. Let's put it that way. Oh, nice. <laughs> no. Wow. A man who knows his salad. <laughs> wow. You know, the, the, the car question is, is, is a tough one because I just I love so many things. And, and then I love, you know, coach-built French cars. Anything done by Fagoni and Falasacci. I mean, but those to me are like, those are cars I almost wouldn't want to own because I don't think I'd be able to enjoy it because I'd just sit around and stare at it. I'd be too scared to drive it. Uh, but, you know, I think the, the the Chrysler convertible is is the car I always wanted. And I mean, and, and now I have one. And I, I've always loved those cars. I mean, my grandfather had a, 58 300 hardtop when I was when I was growing up and and those cars have always have always had a weird you know profound effect on me that I mean that's the car I always gravitate towards and, and you know can rattle off absolutely dorky useless facts about them and I actually had a 57 hardtop that needed restored and I always, there's this joke that every one of them was ever white because it seemed like every time my grandfather bought a 300, it was always white. He never found a car that wasn't white. It was always white. And he had a friend in Iowa that we knew, and he had a parade green 57 Chrysler 300 hardtop. I thought it was one of the most beautiful cars I'd ever seen, mostly because I'd never seen one that wasn't white. And this car was, you know, a real beautiful shade of green metallic. And uh, I just loved that color. I mean, and it was one of them things I always talked about was parade green, parade green. And um, so I got this hard top. And, it, of course, it was white. It was a real nice car. And I kept – there was part of me that was like, you know, the car's a rare car, and it should be restored exactly the way it was. But then there was part of me that was like, you know, maybe I'll just paint that car parade green because I don't think anybody's going to bought too much over the fact that I made one that was cloud white parade green. But uh, then I went through a period of like, well, you know, I'll sell it and I'll find something else because for some reason I just wasn't feeling, you know, doing the white. And I also had a 32 Ford pickup project that I would been slowly accumulating parts for and I was like well maybe I should sell the 57 and finish that well one of these I have these good friends that uh, the husband and wife that that uh, deal with auction companies and he was at advanced plating one time and he said so what's your dream car he's like what's one car you'd want I said oh I'd love to have a 57 or 8 letter car convertible I said but the prices on them are just so ridiculous I said I don't know you know, how ever own one. And uh, a couple months go by and he calls me one night, I'm at home. And at first I, I didn't answer it because I was with my wife and my kids and I was like, oh, I'll talk to him later. And uh, then he called again and he called again. And, and finally I was like, okay, there's something urgent going on. 
So I answer it and he goes, hey, he says, you know how you always wanted a, a letter car convertible? It's like, yeah. He's like, I got an opportunity of a lifetime for you. And I was like, seriously? And uh, he goes, yeah. He says, I'm at this auction in upstate New York. And he says, uh, <coughs> the car was kind of sold on, on a picture on a screen and not necessarily up on stage. And he says, the guy that was the high bidder on it has kicked it back to the to the auction company and they're kind of freaking out because now they don't have a buyer for it. And uh, I was like, really? And uh, so he told me what the, what it was. He didn't even tell me any details about it other than it was a 57 convertible. And uh, I said, well, what was the bid? And he told me what the bid was. And I was like, I'll give you that for it. And I said, that's a steal. And, uh, and of course, you know, that was speaking before thinking because I was like, how the heck am I going to pay for that? <laughs> And, uh, so, you know, I start asking him a few questions about it and I'm like, can you go up and look at the, you know, I said, there's a, there's a little tag that's going to be on the uh, core support up there. And I just want to know, can you read the, some of the numbers to me? So first he goes and reads the VIN tag and then he comes over and reads that to me and, and he, and he says, you know what the paint code is. He says, paint code's F. I was like, oh my God, the car's parade green. And he goes, yeah, he said, he says it's red right now, but it says on the, on the docket right here that it was originally pray green. And I, I'm like, this is meant to be. I said, I, this, this, this car is meant to be. And uh, I said, I said, let me see what I can do. And I'll, I'll, I said, definitely put me down as a player on the car. And, and you know, he, he has a business to run too. So I knew he had to make some money on it as well. So I told him, I said, you need to figure out what you're going to want for it since you're going to be the one that's going to have to buy it and then sell it to me. So, you know, that's all I thought about until he and I finally talked again. And, and, you know, being a dork, I'm like, oh man, they only made 14 parade green convertibles and this is one of them. And, and uh, uh, so luckily he came up with a price and I like, I was like, I think I can figure out how to make that work somehow. So I came up with this elaborate plan that, uh, you know, I can't remember who it was I was talking to and they said, well, the one thing you've got to decide is, what's more important to you? Is it important to have the 32 pickup and the 57 hardtop, or would you gladly give both of them away to have that convertible? I was like, oh, I want that convertible. So that's when I decided I was gonna sell both cars and hopefully come up with enough money to pay what I was gonna borrow to buy that convertible. And uh, luckily, you know, the bank hasn't come and take my, uh, taken anything I own yet. So everything has worked out fairly, <laughs> fairly well, but, uh, got the 57 sold, got the 32 sold and, uh, I still had a balance left, but it was definitely, uh, way more manageable than the initial, uh, initial sticker shock. But, uh, it was definitely the deal of a lifetime because, you know, and, and to add a little bit to the, uh, to the stress of the whole thing. My wife was pregnant at the time with second child. And I think everybody thought that was like a really stupid move to go buy that car. And it's, it's hard for non car people to understand, you know, this, you know, they'd say, well, I know you want a convertible, but you know, I don't think now's the time to buy it. And it's like, no, you don't understand. It's not like one's, it's not like there's going to be one, you know, two years from now that I can buy. This, this is, is my a, time to buy. This, this is the is time. This. If I don't buy it now, I'm never going to have it, you know. And uh, but you know, 
once it, once it once things kind of smoothed out, everybody's been okay with it since then. But uh, uh, there, that car was sitting right next to the building when the building was on fire, oh. and uh, I was scared to death. But uh, the very next day after the fire, uh, after the fire chief, you know, and, and fire department said it was okay, uh, I went down and got the car. A friend of mine had a truck and trailer and he loaded it up and took it to his place. But there's a, he took a really funny picture cause we had to put the top down so that I could get it into the trailer. And, uh, you know, I was all excited that the car was okay and survived. And he had me turn around so he could take my picture when I was behind the steering wheel when we were pushing it in the trailer. And, you know, I'm all smiling and giving him a thumbs up and he gives me the picture. He goes, I think this is hilarious because in the background is the, charred rubble of advanced plating he says it's like he says it, it looks like it looks like there's a war zone behind you and you're like hey everything's okay because i'm in this convertible and <laughs> it's one of the pictures that i'll probably have forever just because it makes me laugh every time i look at it uh, well awesome man and we'll, we'll we'll save for another time my whole theory on guys who um power shift a uh, you know push button transmission <laughs> but uh i remember my grandfather doing that <laughs> he loved he used to love to give people rides in that 58 he had and, and uh he would always he'd have it in second gear and he would push the push button from second to drive at about 90 miles an hour and the back tires would squall on that car and everybody always thought that was the coolest thing ever and of course he's grinning ear to ear you know like a cat that ate a mouse or something looks like he's playing the piano <laughs> awesome well man i i cannot say thank you enough for your time man i uh oh thank you it was a it was a real honor to be asked to do this i mean it's oh i hopefully it didn't bore everybody too much no That's, no i, me? I uh, man i've been looking forward to having you on and just having you here man i like i said you, you've always been a great friend it's good to uh, to have you on on this little part of my life, Likewise. and our life. As a matter of fact, by golly, guys, let's all get together for a group hug. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, you know, Brian. Obviously, we've uh, been face to face a few times, so it'll be nice to uh, to meet the rest of the crew as well. Hopefully, yeah. at the Grand National here in a few yep. weeks, we'll be we there. We'll be there in. Uh, should we give out the booth right now, or should we wait? Want to make them wait, guys? No, oh, doesn't matter. I don't think it matters. Well, stop by and see us at the Grand National Roadster Show. Kitties will be over in Building 6, um, adjacent to the big Chip Foos Builder of the Decade uh, display. Ooh, prime location. Right next to the well, Jerky Hut. <laughs> 30 feet from the men's room. Yeah, between, between the men's room and the jerky hut. The shape. jerky hut. <laughs> yep. Oh my Perfect. God. Yeah, thank you again, Josh. It was, yes, that sir. was great, thank man. You. Great, thank great you. story. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. I know it's late where you're at. We look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks, sir. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. Yes, sir. Have a well, good one. Thank you, man. Uh, thank your thank your lovely wife and your kids for your time too, and um, we'll let you get back to your night. All right, appreciate it. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, All right, man. we'll see you. Talk no, to you bye. soon. Mm -hmm.
Big thanks again to uh, our friend Josh Mishler uh, from Advanced Plating and obviously from a, a, a very storied career in the hot rod industry. I mean, the, the guy's a total, he, he, he is an ambassador to our hobby and mm. quite, a, quite an inspirational guy. Yep, been involved in a lot of really, really cool stuff. Indeed, and and yeah, uh, I want to thank him again. Thanks for um for imparting your knowledge on us and kind of giving some tricks and tips to guys out there who might be you know a little lost on the chrome plating side yeah. of things. I mean, I think he offered a lot of great information, and and once again, I think we're lucky to have a guest on who who really gave us some a, a really good insight into starting a career in this industry. I can never say thank yeah. you enough to all of our guests who do that. Yep. One day when I start a career, I'll uh, I'll impart my knowledge, hopefully. Nice. Yep. Yeah, I'm going to give that a go. So, hey, uh, that said, um, again, Happy New Year to you guys. Welcome to what will what is uh, effectively year two of the Round 6 podcast. Really big things on the way. We'll dive into that a little bit later on, but... Um, yeah, be looking for us to be out and about and live and in person in a few weeks. So uh, we'll touch back on that shortly. Anything else, guys? No, I think we're excited. Good. Big month coming up. Outstanding. Yeah, this is pretty crazy. Well, hey, that said, uh, thank you again for listening. And, uh, well, at the end of this episode, I am a uh, slightly shinier Brian. Oh, oh man, you took mine. Oh, you want me to I'm take a, a different a, one? I'll, I'll be I'll no. Be you, you can have that one. I'll finished. be I'll be more brushed. See, you you took that no, one. You just I'm took out. mine. You I'm out. I'm done. I'm Brad. I'm Alex. I'm finished. Bye. Thanks again for listening, and be sure to keep up with us gearheads over on our website at www.round6pod.com. And if you'd like to, we invite you to follow along with us over on Facebook, Instagram, and be sure to check out all of our latest videos on YouTube.com. I want to hear O'Donna again. (laughs) Come on. I'll give you a dollar. I'll tell you one shiny, shiny (laughs) speckle. You can pay PayPal account.